Hey there! I'm really glad that you've come to check out the KZMC Weekly Teaching. My name is Ryan Yancey and I'm the lead pastor. KZMC gathers together for worship every Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. in person. You can also join us by our live stream available on YouTube. If you're from the area and you're not already connected to a church, we'd love to have you come join us. You can find the full details at kzmc.ca. It's my hope and it's my prayer that God will speak to you through this teaching. May you have a marvelous day. Hello, I'm Ryan Yancey, lead pastor with KZMC. I'm really glad to have you here with us for our weekend teaching for May 14th to the 16th. I invite you to settle in, grab a coffee, whatever, and uh, just enjoy this time together of looking at God's Word. One of the things, one of the, the challenges I think in life is that we don't even realize when we're not free. We don't even realize the possibility that uh, greater freedom exists. And that, that could apply on a personal level, it could apply on a societal level, but oftentimes we don't realize we're not even free. This was exactly the issue, the problem, that William Wallace faced in the 1995 epic movie with Mel Gibson, Braveheart. Now, if, if some of you youngsters haven't seen Braveheart, you gotta go, go see it. I think it's on Amazon Prime. Uh, if you got that, or you could, you could watch it on YouTube or whatever. Uh, Braveheart, awesome movie. It was one of my favorite, favorite, uh, favorites in my younger, younger years. And, and basically, it, it tells the story of the Scottish people who are living under the tyranny of the invasion of the English. And so William Wallace is this, this heroic uh, leader. He's become a, a character of mythic proportions in their society. And, and there's this one scene where he's leading a very ragtag bunch of, uh, of, of soldiers, actually just normal kind of countrymen, but he's leading them into battle. And, and they're clearly ragtag. They don't know what they're doing. And they, they're arriving at the scene of the battle and they look and they see the, uh, the prowess of the English military. And they're overwhelmed and they're scared and they're ready to go home. They're like, we cannot do this. We're, we're heading home to safety. We're going to escape with our lives. And so William Wallace, passionate for the possibility of freedom for his people, he gives this big, uh, this epic speech, this motivational, inspiring uh, message to kind of stir them into battle. And, and here's what he says. I'm not going to try and read it with a Scottish accent. That will just go horrible. But if you can, just imagine this in, in, uh, in a Scottish, Scottish accent. He says, I fight and ye might die. Run and you'll live, at least for a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for just one chance to come back here and to tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And the, the, uh, this ragtag army, they roar and they're inspired and they're ready to charge into battle to fight for their freedom. It's, uh, I, it's funny how the emotions of these, these soldiers could, could flip in, in 30 seconds or so. But he rallies them together with this promise of freedom, inspiring them that freedom is possible. And this is a long, winding journey throughout the movie for these folks. And Wallace is actually later captured and uh, he's facing execution. So they've got him on the execution block. The executioner is ready to raise his, his, uh, his axe. And, and all he has to say is one word, mercy. And the crowd's kind of, they're like, cry out for mercy. All these people who are sympathetic to him. Cry out for mercy so that you may live. 
And it's just like this really uh, momentous scene where Gibson, with all of the strength within him, he can barely talk, all the strength within him, musters out to say something. And then he shouts with all the strength. He just shouts, not mercy, but freedom. And bellers out this massive, inspiring moment. It's one of those moments in a movie that kind of makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. has kind of that, that chilling effect. But this call to freedom. William Wallace knew that his primary task was to inspire the people with the possibility that they could be free. That freedom was possible. And, and the story unfolds that it did have that effect. And they eventually did find their freedom from under the British. And really, we need this too. We need to discover the possibility that we can be free personally. And then as we look at various societal uh, issues, societal challenges, societal ills, that freedom is possible. One of the things that Jesus said when he came is that it was for freedom that you've been set free. It's for freedom. But Paul says those words in the letter to the Galatians. It is for freedom that you have been set free. Are you experiencing freedom? Like true freedom. The fullness of freedom. God's got places He wants us to go that we have never been. He wants us to experience that deeper freedom. And as I mentioned, on a personal level and societal level. There's actually, we're going to be working through this series about freedom. And there's three levels. One is kind of like personal salvation. So we're, we're slaves to sin. We're heading toward death. We place our faith in Jesus. He forgives us. He calls us His children. We're set free. So that's the first level. And then there's this like a personal spiritual healing level that goes even deeper. Um, so finding freedom in daily life, in daily experience as we walk with Jesus, as we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then there's a third level of like society. Think of the kingdom of God, the shalom, the peace, all of the goodness of God flowing through earth and seeking freedom in society. So we kind of got these three levels of freedom that we're going to be uh, considering. And so I invite you actually to cry out with William Wallace to cry out freedom in the face of oppression. So we're starting this series in Exodus and it's called This Journey That We're On. Uh, to borrow the words from Nelson Mandela, the title of his autobiography, it's called The Long Walk to Freedom. And really, I mean, that's what the journey of the, of the uh, Israelites was. It was a long walk to freedom. And so we're going to hold this, uh, this story of the Israelites from Exodus through Numbers, from, from deliverance from Egypt on through their entry into the Promised Land. This story we're going to hold up as a mirror. Kind of look at their story and then see ourselves, see the dynamics of our own story in Israel's story so that we could find freedom also. So we're going to be doing that over the next eight or so, uh, eight or so weeks with a few breaks along the way, more or less through till about the middle of, of August. And as we call this journey that we're on. So let's take a look in the book of, of Exodus. Exodus uh, chapter, chapter 1, starting at verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation, all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and they became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal with them shrewdly or they will be even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them. That's a, that's a word that's popping up a couple times here. Oppress, oppression. To oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. 
But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with brick labor, in brick, with harsh labor, in brick and mortar. And with all kinds of work in the fields, in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you were helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you set the baby, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the Hebrew midwives. And he asked them, he said, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and they became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Think of the concept of flourishing. One of the things that I enjoy doing when I visit with some of our, our older folks in the church is to ask them how many great-grandchildren that they have. And sometimes they'll have a picture set of their whole entire family. And you never know, they might have six great-grandkids or 30 great-grandkids. But I always find that really interesting. And, and I find it interesting to think about even for myself. What will it, if, you know, if the Lord gives me many years, if I, if I grow into old, old age, how many great-grandchildren will I have the blessing to see? How many great-grandchildren will I have the blessing to see? I, I think it'll just be unreal one day to like sit there, look at Brittany, be like, like, look at what God has done through us. Look what has come out uh, from us. And I think of that even with my own grandparents and, and their family. So my, my grandmother, my mother's mother just passed away a couple weeks ago and my grandfather passed away a couple years ago. And, and, but just thinking for them what it must feel like at, at family gatherings in recent years and we'd all be gathered together and in the park and just looking, looking at all their, their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, how this like flourishing has extended. You know, you look and, and there's one who, some who, a family in Cambodia, a family in Florida, Pennsylvania, a grandchild in, in Spain now, and, and they look and there's a fuel truck driver and there's an, uh, a, a county education director, a construction manager, the CEO of a hospice and palliative care center. Uh, there's a videographer, uh, a, a plumber, all of these different ways in which their family is extended out into society, contributing, growing, so on and so forth. And this multiplying effect is, as their family, many, most of whom have continued on in the ways of following Jesus as well. And I think like this is what flourishing looks like. We get together uh, when we could do that. Can't wait till we can again for, for a family reunion in the park. And you know what we're eating, we're enjoying ice cream cones together, uh, sitting and swapping stories, catching up. The kids are playing in the playground. There's a baseball game going on. It's just all this activity. I'm like, this is what flourishing looks like. I think that this is what God intended for us. And we see this flourishing among the people of Israel. Exodus 1 verses 6 to 7 says, Now Joseph and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. Notice that word, fruitful. They multiplied greatly. Notice that word, multiplied. And increased in numbers. Another phrase to notice. And they became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So they'd been in Egypt for a while and they were growing. 
Now, those words I said to pay attention to, do they sound familiar? If you're familiar with the biblical story, they, they will. This is echoing the creation mandate that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden for all of humanity. Genesis 1.28, what did he say? He said, be fruitful and increase in numbers. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and increase in numbers. And this language is positioned multiple times throughout the book of Genesis that God keeps kind of giving this mandate to his people in blessings and prayers and descriptions. They multiplied and increased in number. That's exactly what the Israelites were doing. This God's flourishing, building society and, and goodness. And I, I think that God blesses that, this development of society, and God smiles upon it as well. So what, what does that flourishing look like for you? What does a, a flourishing society around you look like? This is God pouring out his goodness on the earth. But the flourishing of God, this multiplying, this being fruitful, increasing in numbers, development of society, is always met with op opposition. It's always met with oppression. Every time. Oppression, if, if you define it, it's basically a force seeking to control, reduce, and inflict cruelty on God's goodness in the world. So it's like a force trying to control, reduce, suppress another group of people. Oppression. It's not hard to see oppression all around us. There's, there's obvious examples. Um, you know, my mind is drawn to Canada's efforts uh, historically to um, oppress First Nations peoples. You think of the uh, restricting them to small pockets of land known as reserves. And for a long time, First Nations people actually had to get a pass and it was hard to obtain to even leave the reserve. That's oppression, resisting the flourishing, the developing goodness of their society. Uh, I, th I think of uh, oppression within families. You know, th there was a couple that I was involved with when I lived in Clinton and just a beautiful couple. They were in their early 40s. They had a hard road. They had this wonderful, lovely little young daughter. She is five, six years old. And, and you could tell they loved one another. They loved their daughter. And, uh, but they'd had a hard road. And they were struggling with addictions issues. And, and you know, it's, they, they engaged with the church. And I would meet up with them. And we'd do Bible study. There was the one, one of the members of the family joined in baptism. Another had a profession, confession of faith. When they first started connecting with the church, like he was there before we opened the doors of the room to grow where we met and he was shoveling the snow on the ramp and and the, and the stairs and and, and they, they loved it and they wanted so much uh for their daughter they t you can tell they just loved her they took such good care of her and and this evidence of flourishing within them grabbing onto god grabbing on a community making good steps forward but the oppression was so real in their lives as they struggled with uh addictions as they struggled with the ghosts of the abuse and trauma of their younger years and 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 so it was it was hard you know like they uh you know they weren't always honest about how they were doing because they were in such fear if they were honest that they could lose their daughter and they'd go through spurts where they'd really dig and engage in spurts where they would kind of pull back and withdraw because of the shame that they felt because of the the health and painful struggles and it was just this like i just look back and and, you know, I think about them and I, I pray for them and my heart just breaks because it was just so clear, this battle between the flourishing of a family that loved one another and just getting sucked back into this addiction. I've lost touch with them. I'm not sure where they're at or how their daughter is, is doing. But just a clear example of this like force of evil trying to overcome God's flourishing in the, in the world. So we think about this idea of oppression. It, it makes perfect sense, right? Because God has an arch enemy, the deceiver, 
uh, Satan. And, and scriptures tell us that he has come to steal, to kill, and destroy. John 10.10, 10, Jesus said that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Uh, Satan is going to do whatever he can to destroy God's goodness in the world. So we, we see this oppression in the story of Israel. Verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, they made So the Egyptians made the Hebrews' lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields, in all their harsh labor. The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. God is at work. This, how do you think the pyramids and the glories of the ancient Egyptian empire arrived? It was through forced labor, the glory of a few, at the expense of the suffering of many, this oppression against God's flourishing, this evil and oppression. And, and, and so actually it got, got worse. Uh, chapter 1, verse 16, um, Pharaoh orders midwives to kill every baby boy that's delivered. And then uh, the story develops and, and Pharaoh then orders that every, every young baby boy to be thrown into the, uh, the Nile River. So evil and oppression will always work against the life of goodness that God is unleashing. So we got these two pieces. They're flourishing, they're multiplying in, in number and then oppression through the evil empire. And, and Pharaoh, they're trying to restrict that, that flourishing by killing the baby boys. Where do you see oppression? Where do you see it? in your own life, this restriction of the goodness of God? Where do you see it in society around you? Uh, tons of examples. One, if you're struggling with self-esteem, that's a result of the oppression of the deceiver. We are more and more aware of the realities of human trafficking around us. Estimates say that in the world, global slavery is a huge issue, that there are more people globally in slavery than there was during the transatlantic slave trade. And uh, a lot of people say there's upwards of, of 49 million people uh, enslaved uh, around the world today. 49 million. We got racism. We got misogyny. We've got people struggling with addictions. We have verbal abuse in workplaces and in families. We have unjust mining. It was just in the news about um, uh, a clash, a violent clash between Brazilian indigenous people and illegal mining companies coming to strip their land of, of resources. Like this is oppression. We've got the war on drugs. I'm learning more and more that the way that, that, uh, in North America, we've sought to fight against the, the presence and the negative influence of, of illicit drugs uh, has been created more harm than good. All of these examples of oppression within us, within our families, nationally, globally. But as we see this oppression, we need to be inspired by the likes of William Wallace. And, and ultimately, we're inspired by the story of God, but he's a glimpse or a picture of that. We got to have these William Wallace moments where we recognize the oppression, we recognize that we're being controlled and resisted, and we rise up and we say, hold on, this isn't right. And we shout, freedom, freedom is possible. It's possible. And, and so the third kind of piece that we see, the first, first thing that we see is the flourishing of God in the story. The second piece is, is the reality of this oppression. And the third piece is resistance. We see resistance in this story. So if, if we look at the story of, of Israel and the Exodus, where does the Exodus start? When does their departure from Egypt start? It starts with two women named Shipra and Pua. Marvelous names. I've never paid much attention to them, but they are true heroes in this story. Shifra and Pua are heroes. And, and uh, just a, a, a side note, I'm going to share a quote here from a lady named Danielle Strickland. Uh, very dynamic uh, leader, preacher, 
uh, spent many years in the Salvation Army, and now she's extended her ministry more broadly. She's an author as well, based out of Toronto, a teaching pastor with The Meeting House alongside Bruxy Cavey and a few others. And uh, so I was listening to different podcasts, looking at resources for this sermon, and I came across a book that she wrote called Mass Exodus. And I was kind of like, oh man, like I don't even know why I'm preaching this series. Like, this is it. Just what she was writing just resounded uh, with me in, in my heart very clearly, very loudly. And I'm like, man, if we could just read this book together instead of a sermon series, but this, that's not going to work so well. So I'm going to actually, I'm highly influenced by Danielle Strickland and her book, Mass Exodus. Check it out. Google it. There's podcasts that will highlight the general gist of the message. Uh, you can get it through Hoopla, through the Huron County Library. I'll be referencing along the way Mass Exodus by Danielle Strickland. And, and so she highlights the resistance of Shifra and Pua. And, and she says, the Exodus didn't start when Moses parted the Red Sea. It didn't start when he stood before Pharaoh, uh, calling on him to let my people go. It didn't start when Moses stood before a burning bush, or even when he stood over the body of the Egyptian slave driver he had just killed. Two women started the exodus before Moses was even born. You ever thought, I, I, you ever thought of that? I, that never crossed my mind. It started with two women. So Pharaoh tells Shifra and Pua, they're, they're these midwives, maybe they're kind of overseers of all the midwives, he instructs them to kill all the baby boys from the Hebrews. You show up at a delivery, um, it, it, it's a boy, and, and in some way, shape, or form, kill that baby boy. But Shifra and Pua, they don't, they refuse. It says that they fear God, they respected life and the goodness of God, and they didn't. And so Pharaoh asked them, he's like, what's going on here? Why are these baby boys... Uh, living. And, and they tell this uh, marvelous, righteous lie. There's no way around it. They tell a lie. They mislead Pharaoh. And, and this is actually for this other ethical question that maybe you wondered about before. It actually, it appears that when for a righteous cause, truly righteous, it is, um, it is okay to tell a falsehood, to tell a lie. And you think of instances like, say, hiding people in, in the Holocaust or whatever, like that is a good thing. We see it here. They're honored for this. So they tell this lie and they say, well, these, these Hebrew women, they're, they're kind of a sturdy bunch. They call us to come and we show up, but they already delivered the baby without us. The kid already popped out before we arrived. I'm going to get in trouble with uh, my obstetric nurse wife uh, for using that terminology. Uh, <laughs> she would say it's a much more involved process than simply popping out. Uh, but So the, the kids show up before they arrive. That's what they tell Pharaoh. It's not true, but it's what they tell Pharaoh. This is remarkable. These two lowly women, they are standing up to this oppression. They're saying no. And so Strickland, Daniel Strickland continues. She says, so these two women did something very powerful. They said no. And make no mistake, every revolutionary act begins with a no. When the most powerless group in society stood up to the most powerful, something happened. Time suspended. Things slowed down. The world flipped upside down. And even if for a brief moment, everything changed because of their belief in God and the beauty of life, because they were willing to take a risk and to do the impossible thing, to do the right thing no matter what. And because of this, light came in on an impossibly dark situation. They resisted the forces of oppression. William Wallace led his people to say, no, this is not okay. This is not acceptable and we're going to fight against it. What forms of oppression is God asking you to say no to in your life? 
and in society around you. So I, I've been sharing with you bits of my journey with Freedom Session. This uh, program that we ran uh, did kind of a trial with a number of people. We're going to expand it more fully in the fall and give you the option to join if, if you wish. And in, in Freedom Session, it, by entering it, actually, it was a declaration on my part of saying, no, I am not going to put up with the forces of oppression in my life. You know, I, I could have just been like, well, things are relatively good and not recognize the, the oppression that I was under within spiritually that, that I basically I was saying, no, I'm not going to put up with not feeling this sense of peace with me, in me. I'm not going to put up with the ways that I kind of numb that unsettledness or that anxiousness. Um, yeah, so I said, no. Um, this is running counter to the freedom that God has for me. So went through this program, 28 weeks, three hours uh, every Monday night, one hour of homework, and it was my actually putting a stake in the ground saying, no, this is not okay, and I'm going to pursue freedom. And, and it's, been a, it's been a blessing. And you've heard me say, and, and at, at points I'll share more fully my journey in terms of how that identity stuff has led to greater freedom in my life. But it was, it was a statement of resistance to the deceiver and to God saying, no, I'm going to walk into this freedom uh, more fully. Pay attention to maybe a few stories in the coming months of folks for whom that was a case also. The final piece we see in this story uh, is an acknowledgement. Oh, sorry, is, is crying out to God. So there's acknowledgement of the oppression, there's resisting it, and then there's a cry out to God. Interestingly, in this text, in Exodus chapter 1, the action of God is not mentioned at all. Not once. The only reference to God is saying that Shifra and Pua feared God. So that's their response to him. But it says nothing about the character of God. It says nothing about the activity of God. God is more or less absent in this first chapter. And to think that this, this slavery was unfolding over decades, possibly over a couple centuries. Where was God in the midst of this? That's a real legitimate question. Surely some of the Israelite people are saying, like, where is God? Does he not care? It could have been easy for the people to have thought that God abandoned them. But they cried out anyway. If you look later on in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, it says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery. They cried out, and their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God does hear. We see that in verse 24, and he responds. But we'll get into that next week, later on in the series. So this is key. When you see that you're not free, when you stand up in resistance, another piece is to cry out to God. Because even when God isn't responding yet, it doesn't mean that he doesn't care. It doesn't mean that he's not going to take action. We think of the book of Revelation chapter 6 verse 10. You've got saints in heaven. They were killed for their faith. They're in heaven. And they're looking at the persecution, the oppression of the church down on earth. And they're saying, God, how long? How long, O Lord? And the very next verse, Revelation 6 verse 11 says, it tells them to wait a little longer. I don't know why. I'm not going to get into all that. Why does God act in some points and not in others? Why doesn't he act immediately? I don't know. But I do know and I do see here that God responds to our cries and we're to keep crying out. God is going to rescue us. So pray. Pray with tears. Pray with resistance. It's, it's interesting in, in orphanages. There have been studies or, or yeah, there's studies that, that have shown that uh, the reason why in an orphanage kids are quite silent and there's not a lot of crying is because when they're when they don't have that direct personal connection they learn that their cries do not receive a response and so they stop crying their emotions have been stunted because nobody responds why bother and so they're quiet and so I wonder in this sense if we in unbelief in a lack of faith have stopped crying out to God because we don't think that we'll be responded to 
like an infant in an orphanage. And as it is for an infant in an orphanage, that's a sad thing. And so I want you to, to take that step of faith. I want you to look at stories around you of God delivering people. I want you to look at the story in Scripture and to believe that God can rescue you. Don't become emotionally stunted. Cry out to God. Keep asking God, waiting for Him to deliver. As you stand up, resist, say no. Cry out to God for that help. The people in Israel, they cried out. They didn't give up. And God responded. So in conclusion, I want to ask you, are you free? Like, are, are, are you really experiencing the flourishing that God has created you for? Is society around you flourishing? What are the ways in which God might be asking you to stand up and speak a word of resistance to begin to move and to make change so that there will be freedom from oppression in society around you? I want you to think of specific examples that God might be inviting you to address. And then I want you to join with William Wallace in saying we're not going to put up with this oppression. I'm not going to put up with the tyranny of the deceiver. He's trying to destroy us. And so stand with William Wallace and believe that freedom is possible. Believe that it's something to strive for and shout freedom. In conclusion, I invite you to join on this journey to freedom. Through this uh, teaching series over the next couple of weeks. And I invite you to spend time with God. Ask God, what does freedom look like in my life? How can I take these steps and call out to God? I'm excited to see how God unfolds freedom in, in our lives in the, uh, in the months and years ahead because I believe it's possible. I've seen it. I've experienced it. When we look at human history, church history, there's these moments of God pouring himself out, bringing freedom. So let's cry out freedom together and join together on this journey. Let's pray. God, thank you that freedom is possible. Thank you for these stories that inspire us and uh, give us insight into our own lives. And so we ask you for freedom. We call out to you. And whatever, as those who are listening, whatever personal issue or societal issue they have in mind, we cry together, God, bring freedom. And we hold on to that promise from you that it is for freedom that you've set us free. Thank you for your guiding presence in our lives. And we submit ourselves to your work that you want to do for your glory, for your honor, and the flourishing of us, your people. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.